We're going to kick off this podcast with a story about a group of men, radical thinkers who gathered in a room in colonial Philadelphia to share their grievances about an increasingly intolerable situation. They would take their direct experience of oppression at the hands of European monarchies, and together they would write and sign a bold protest against political oppression that takes away the liberty of men. But this declaration wasn't written in the summer of 1776, and these men weren't meeting in Independence Hall. Our story takes place nearly 100 years earlier, during the winter of 1688. And this gathering happened in a brand new community, now called Germantown, a neighborhood in Northwest Philadelphia. On this episode, we'll learn the story of this lesser known Philadelphia Declaration, now known as the Germantown Protest the first anti-slavery document written in America. And there's a very good reason why this anti-slavery document was written here in the Quaker city of Philadelphia, but it might not be the story you think it is. Welcome to the Found in Philadelphia podcast, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present because history matters. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. And that's where we'll begin, with this grand experiment that is Philadelphia. From the very beginning, from its founding in 1681, Philadelphia has attracted radical thinkers with utopian ideals those who dreamed of starting a completely new society based on revolutionary ideas. For this story, we're interested in a group of radicals who emigrated from what is now Western Germany in hopes of founding a model community in William Penn's new colony of Pennsylvania. So why did a group of religious radicals from Northern Europe decide to join this new English colony? The answer is a mix of good marketing with a strong dose of political oppression. The writers of the Germantown protest came from an area of Europe that was full of religious upheaval and devastated by decades of war between Catholic and Protestant rulers. The ruler of this area, along the border of what's now Germany and the Netherlands, offered his land as a haven of religious tolerance, and he encouraged radical religious refugees to come and help him rebuild after so many years of war. And refugees did come from all over Northern Europe representing a variety of radical religious groups. You might be familiar with some of these radical groups, the Mennonites and the Amish. And radical might not be the word you would use to describe these people who dress in old-fashioned clothing and seem to reject modern life. But believe me, they were revolutionary. So what made these people so radical? Martin Luther and his religious reformists started the break with the Catholic Church and kicked off the Protestant Reformation way back in 1517. This was eventually the cause of all those decades of war across Europe. But the radical reformers wanted to go even further than the Protestant reformers. They were the most radical of the radicals. They were anti-establishment. While the Protestants wanted to reform the state church, the radical reformers wanted to reform the entire society. Many of the writers of the Germantown protest belonged to a group of Dutch-speaking Mennonite refugees who believed that the church was not a legal or a geographical entity, but a community of people who worshiped together in the spirit of brotherly love. 
And most importantly, they refused to recognize the authority of the state, its church or its military. They were utopian idealists who dreamed of a pure society based on the teachings of the New Testament. Among these Dutch-speaking Mennonite refugees were the Optengrafs, a family of linen weavers who would become leaders in both the religious and economic life of the Mennonite community. The Optengrafs are an important part of this story because members of the Optengrafe family would later emigrate to Philadelphia and help write the earliest anti-slavery documents in the United States. And the Optengrafs, as we'll see, were religious idealists used to sticking their necks out for their beliefs. Into this Mennonite community came a new group of religious radicals, the Quakers, or the Society of Friends, bringing with them a map of their new colony of Pennsylvania. Quaker missionaries from England traveled throughout Northern Europe, where they saw potential for both converts and colonists. Here were people who were open to radical ideas and utopian visions of society. The Quakers spread ideas of starting fresh in a new land called Pennsylvania under the laws of religious tolerance, or liberty of conscience as they called it, freedom to think and worship as you chose. For these radicals, this was a heady idea. Among the first Mennonites to convert to Quakerism was a group of artisans associated with linen making. This group included, of course, several Optengrafes. The family was continuing its tradition of deep religious reflection and idealism. However, Quakerism proved too radical, even in this small bastion of religious tolerance. And the local government sent armed men to expel the Quakers from the city, including one of the Optengrafes. When the expelled men secretly returned to their families and their businesses, the Quaker converts were threatened with whipping and branding. One of the Optengrafe's colleagues in the linen-making business was beaten in the streets by his neighbors so badly that he couldn't walk. To these recent Quaker converts, this Pennsylvania thing, a society founded on ideas of religious freedom, that was beginning to sound like a pretty good idea. This group of linen weavers, including three Optengrafe brothers, as well as a lawyer from Frankfurt named Francis Daniel Pastorius, were among the first Quaker converts from this area to purchase land in the new colony of Pennsylvania. This was a group of idealists with means who intentionally uprooted their families and their businesses to start over in Pennsylvania. They arrived in 1683 and claimed a plot of land on a rise above the Wissahickon Creek to the northwest of the future city of Philadelphia. Today we know it as the neighborhood of Germantown. Germantown today is a neighborhood in Northwest Philadelphia that like so many places in the city feels like it's in transition. There's a mix of old and new, areas that are vibrant and areas that feel neglected. But what I found everywhere was a really profound sense of community within a diverse neighborhood. There was a feeling that this was really special, that this is kind of the secret sauce of Germantown. Off of the main street, Germantown is a great mix of housing on tree-lined streets. And these residential streets are really the lifeblood of the neighborhood. You have an assortment of small and large houses mixed in with community gardens and parks. When I spoke with people in the neighborhood about what they liked about Germantown, they all mentioned this variety of housing and that it was so green. But residents make it clear that it's the people of Germantown and the strong sense of community here that make this neighborhood truly special. There is a tradition of progressive liberalism and grassroots activism here that brings together people from all kinds of backgrounds, 
Here's lifelong resident Zendra Sharif Trudeau. Germantown is diverse in a, there's more variation, I think, as far as uh, people and their backgrounds. But there, there really is a strong sense of community in Germantown, even though you have this like mix. Unlike Zendra, Dennis Barnaby moved to Germantown as an adult. He's originally from California. But Germantown is where he decided to raise his family. I asked him why. There was so much personal life um, interaction that seemed much more at home for me than it did where I'd come from. I do know there were numbers of opportunities to connect with other people in, through organizations and efforts around in making sure the neighborhood was being taken care of. So there are a lot of really interesting things happening that just offered the opportunity to meet people. And by meeting them, you felt connected to them and you didn't want to walk away from it because this is where else are you going to go that you can have this kind of fun with other people um, caring about where you live and trying to make it better. And the strong sense of community, this made Germantown an incredible place to raise a family in the city. I mean, we lived very near the Kelly School where kids kind of used the front space for wall ball and skateboards or football or whatever. There were always kids around for them to play with. And Zendra, who grew up in Germantown, got to share one of her favorite childhood places with her kids. So the library was really important for us. And the, what, what really makes it special is that my mom used to take me there when I was little and they had this like big wooden dragon there and now it's gone. But I think everyone who used to go there, like that's our best memory is that big wooden dragon <laughs> with like these wooden scales that you could climb on. If you walk around Germantown today, you'll see remnants of the past everywhere. Though very little remains from those very early days when the first settlers arrived here. One exception is the Main Street, Germantown Avenue, which runs along the same path as a Native American trading route that was here long before any European settlers arrived. As you walk down the busy street today, you'll notice small stone buildings that sit right up against the road in between grand mansions. Most of these were built later in the 1700s. It's a feast of early architecture, from the modest Mennonite meeting house, the more formal Wick house with its extensive gardens, the elegant Deschler Morris house where George Washington once lived, and Grumblethorpe, famous for its role in the Revolutionary War. But there's a diversity of stories being told in Germantown that reflect the deep roots of the Black community here. Residents noted how the Johnson House celebrated its history as a stop on the Underground Railroad, and provided an important cultural center for the neighborhood's Black residents, as Zendra explained to me. You can go to the Johnson House. They always do the Juneteenth, which is when the slaves were freed. And so a lot of Black people, I think, feel like that's our Independence Day. Another unique place to visit in Germantown is the Colored Girls Museum, which is dedicated to celebrating both the history and culture of Black women through changing exhibitions and artist installations. Here's Zendra again. That place is so awesome. It's a house. Yeah. So every single room is converted into like this historical and just culturally rich space. So even though it's just a house, it's packed. That's an important one because it's for us, by us. But there's a place in Germantown where its past and the future of its community seem to stand in contrast, especially as part of our story about the Germantown protest. Remember that lawyer, Francis Daniel Pastorius, who came over to Pennsylvania with the Optin Grafes? 
those Dutch-speaking religious radicals. Pastorius's house still stands, just off Germantown Avenue, 25 High Street. It's right across the street from the recently closed public high school. A grand old building whose future remains uncertain. The school's closure is one of the major issues facing the community of Germantown. They're wondering where their neighborhood, where their children's future is headed. And how does the past connect to this future? But in order to understand how the Germantown community is facing this future, we've got to go back to the very beginning of this place called Germantown. So let's go back to those early Germantown settlers who've just sailed across the Atlantic. This small group of religious radicals was made up mostly of Dutch-speaking Quaker converts, many of them former Mennonites, and most of them were skilled in the whole process of making cloth, specifically of turning the raw flax plant into linen cloth. With these Dutch-speaking settlers came the German-speaking lawyer Pastorius, who represented wealthy investors back in Europe, who were interested in speculating on land in the new Pennsylvania colony. This group of early settlers met with William Penn in 1683 near the busy waterfront, which really was all that there was of Philadelphia at that time. They haggled a bit about where their land would be, drew lots, and then set out with whatever belongings they had brought with them into what was essentially a Native American landscape. They traveled northwest along the Great Road, a Native American road now known as Germantown Avenue. They would have walked through a wooded landscape, cleared of underbrush for hunting by the Lenape people. Here and there, they would have seen fields of crops, pigs living off the abundant acorns, and herds of cows grazing in fields of grass. As the land rose to the west, the settlers would have found themselves on an area of relatively flat ground, surrounded by pleasant springs and small creeks. Here they laid out a small town, with lots clustered together along the main road. From the beginning, Germantown was different. The early settlers were artisans from small towns, not farmers. They specialized in growing flax, drying and removing the plant's fibers, spinning the fibers into thread, bleaching and dyeing the thread, and then weaving it into linen cloth. The work required a community of skilled craftsmen. It's not a coincidence that Germantown became an early industrial hub. The industrious immigrants began selling linen cloth as early as 1685 just two years after arriving. In Letters Home, the Germantown community seems to be thriving. They mention the fruitful soil, the prosperity of the growing city. And they also wrote home, and I quote, about the blacks and moors used as slaves to labor. African slavery. It was happening here in the city of brotherly love. And the Quakers ruling the colony didn't just tolerate it, they encouraged it. They participated in it. Enslaved people belonging to Philadelphia's Quaker elite were laboring along the busy wharves, clearing the land for building and for farming, and fueling the early Pennsylvania economy. But slavery didn't fit into the Germantown settlers' ideals for their new home, this Quaker utopia, this place of religious freedom, or liberty of conscience, as they called it. It's true that enslaved people were part of the early American labor force in the region, well before the arrival of Penn and the Quakers. However, the wealth of many elite Quakers of Philadelphia was tied directly to the slave labor that worked their sugar plantations in Barbados. 
One of the earliest ships bearing enslaved Africans arrived in Philadelphia in 1684, with 150 slaves from Quaker plantations in the West Indies. Wealthy Quakers such as Isaac Norris, Jonathan Dickinson, James Logan, and the Penn family not only owned slaves, but were active in the slave trade itself. Public auctions of enslaved people were held in the streets of Philadelphia. Though the high cost for enslaved people in the early days of the colony meant that most slaveholders were among the wealthy elite, we do know of one Germantown settler, Cornelius Baum, a baker from the Netherlands, who purchased a slave when he arrived in Pennsylvania. He later settled in Germantown in 1687 and may or may not have brought this enslaved person with him. I want to introduce you to someone here, Dr. Katherine Gerbner. She grew up in Chestnut Hill, just down the street from Germantown, and she's done a lot of research on Quakers and their history with slavery. She recently published a book about this history called Christian Slavery. I became extremely invested in understanding this other history of Quakerism, and it wasn't about abolition, it was actually about Quakers owning enslaved people. And so I started to study this history of Quaker slave ownership, uh, the connection between Philadelphia and Barbados, where many, many Quakers lived and owned slaves in the 17th century. And then thinking about the repercussions for this history today, Quakers have also sort of suppressed this history of Quaker slave ownership within the history of Quakerism. I mean, it's a history that you wouldn't hear a Quaker really tell today. I know, you're thinking, wait. This was supposed to be an uplifting story about how woke these early Germantown settlers were. A celebration of yet another moment when great ideas came out of Philadelphia. But the truth is that the Germantown anti-slavery protest wasn't written by people railing against slavery in the South. The writers of the Germantown protest saw enslaved people as part of the everyday sites of Philadelphia. Philadelphia's elite Quaker founders were profiting from slave labor, both here and on their plantations in the Caribbean, from the very beginning. So, quick recap. You have William Penn and his Quaker missionaries selling a dream of a utopian world of religious tolerance in Philadelphia. You have a group of Dutch-speaking religious radicals from Europe who decide to convert to Quakerism and start a new life in the Pennsylvania colony by working the land to make linen cloth. And in their new home in Philadelphia, they're confronted by wealthy Quaker leaders who buy and sell enslaved people. The stage is set for the writing of the Germantown protest of 1688. It's the winter of 1688, the dead of winter. February 18th, a group of Quakers meet in Germantown. They decide that enough is enough. It's time to make some hard and unpopular decisions and take a stand. It's time to demand some answers from the colony's Quaker leaders. They write, These are the reasons why we are against the traffic of men. Now, though they are black, we cannot conceive there is more liberty to have them slaves as it is to have other white ones. There is a saying that we should do to all men like as we will be done ourselves, making no difference of what generation, descent, or color they are. 
Here, the writers are building their protest on the foundation of the golden rule, that we should treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. But they are clarifying that this holds true regardless of differences in age, place of birth, religion, or skin color. You're not allowed to dehumanize another group of people in order to treat them unfairly. And then the writers of the protest immediately call out their fellow Quakers, their brothers in this utopian Christian experiment in religious freedom, who preach liberty of the mind while enslaving the bodies of others. They call them hypocrites and thieves. And they make it clear where they stand. And those who steal or rob men, and those who buy or purchase them, are they not all alike? Here is liberty of conscience which is right and reasonable. Here ought to be likewise liberty of the body. But to bring men hither, or to rob and sell them against their will, we stand against. It's quite clear that the writers of the protest saw some sort of kinship with enslaved people as fellow victims of political oppression. The writers had experienced oppression in their home country because of their religious beliefs. And here in Philadelphia, they saw enslaved people being oppressed because of their skin color. In Europe, there are many oppressed for conscience sake, and here there are those oppressed which are of black color. But the writers do not equate the two types of oppression. They call out slavery as the worst possible crime. Pray, what thing in the world can be done worse toward us than if men should rob or steal us away and sell us for slaves to strange countries, separating husbands from their wives and children? And finally, the writers call out the Quaker slave owners and their hypocritical commitment to peace and nonviolence. It's a bit convoluted, but their argument simply points out that slavery is a violent act, period. They basically ask, what will you do when your slaves rise up and treat you with the same violence they received from you? Will you remember your commitment to peace and nonviolence then? And they write about enslaved people. Or have they not as much right to fight for their freedom as you have to keep them slaves? There's only one possible solution in the writer's minds. It's active, not passive. And we who profess that it is not lawful to steal must likewise avoid to purchase such things as are stolen, but rather help to stop this robbing and stealing, if possible. And such men ought to be delivered out of the hands of the robbers and set free, as in Europe. The writers state that it's not enough to do nothing to look the other way. The only moral thing to do is to act, to free all of the slaves. The writers of the Germantown protest then sign their names. Garrett Hendricks, Dirk Optengrave, Francis Daniel Pastorius, and Abraham Optengrave. What is remarkable about the writers of the Germantown protest of 1688 is that they saw enslaved people as fellow human beings, as fathers and mothers, husbands and wives and children. They had the capacity to see past differences in their places in society, differences in their religion, language, and culture. They saw people who were oppressed by those in power, exploited for their economic benefit, and treated like property simply because of their skin color.
And they took a public stand against the Quaker leadership by writing this protest. A lot of scholars have attributed the writing of the protest to Francis Daniel Pastorius, who was a lawyer and the best educated man in the group. But Catherine Gerbner thinks that the protest was more likely written by one of the others, most likely one of the Optingrave brothers, who brought with them their religious radicalism and willingness to buck the establishment. I do think that they were, they were radicals um, in many ways. And, you know, they, and I think that they were troublemakers. Yeah, willing to put their name to it and then willing to really um, challenge the most powerful people in the colony who were these English Quakers who controlled the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. And they did so at their own peril. Another indicator that the writer of the protest was one of the Dutch-speaking artisans and not the German-speaking lawyer is the use of language, because words matter. The Germantown protest is not a perfect document. Could definitely have used an editor. It was written by non-native English speakers. Its phrasing is awkward. And at times, it uses language that would now make us cringe. In two places, the protest uses the term N-E-G-E-R. The Dutch word used for black people up until fairly recently. The word is based on the word for black in various European languages. The word as used in the protest of 1688 was undoubtedly tied to the language of the European slave trade, but it would not become the racial slur that it is today until the late 18th century. The use of this Dutch word reinforces the theory that the protest was primarily written by the Dutch-speaking linen weavers and not by the better educated German-speaking Pastorius. But that word is in there and I'd be remiss not to mention it. But here's Catherine Gerbner again on why the Germantown protest remains such an important document, despite its flaws. On the one hand, we should look at the history of oppression and injustice. And on the other hand, I think it is important to acknowledge these voices and these moments where humanity does come through. And so I think the 1688 protest against slavery is an incredible document because this group of Quakers really did take a moment and look at slavery for what it was. The writers of the Germantown protest had a certain set of experiences that allowed them to see slavery as a system of oppression. African slavery was something they had never seen back home in Europe, and slavery in any form went against their interpretation of the Bible. Also, as victims of religious oppression themselves, they were able to recognize slavery as an abuse of power. And finally, their livelihood relied on skilled craftsmen, not the heavy manual labor done by enslaved people. They allowed their experience to give them this really important insight into African slavery as, as it was being practiced in Philadelphia. And I should add, though, that a lot of people have those different contexts. Not everyone can put it together and actually take a stand on what is an injustice. So what happened next? Well, not much. The 1688 protest itself tells the story of being folded into a small rectangle, which made it easier to pass from hand to hand. It was clearly opened and folded several times. The protest was first sent through the proper Quaker hierarchy to the monthly meeting at Dublin, where it was considered too important a matter for them to take on themselves. So they sent it to the monthly meeting in Philadelphia, who subsequently passed it along to the higher authority of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. They asked 
Derek Optengrave, and two other signers to present their protest to the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. We're not quite sure how that went down, but the Quakers ultimately ruled that it would not be proper for them to give a positive judgment on the case because it related to so many other parts. The Germantown protest, this anti-slavery hot potato, was likely shoved into a drawer and forgotten. But you can still see the Germantown protest of 1688. It's now part of the Quaker collections at Haverford College, about 10 minutes west of Germantown. I spoke with a curator of Quaker collections, Mary Crowderife, to learn more about the protest today. So, so this is one of my favorite pieces in the collection. You know, it's like choosing one of your children in a lot of ways. Like, you don't really have a favorite, right. but if you had to choose one. This is how archivists feel about their collections. Mary told me what the Germantown protest looks like today. It's about the size of an 11 by 17 piece of paper, and it shows signs of its age. The paper's torn where it's been folded and refolded. The ink used to write the protest itself has become corrosive and has started to eat through the paper. So the document has been conserved and is now encased in a special protective paper and is mounted within its own display case. I asked Mary how the Germantown protest ended up at Haverford. You know, it has this long storied history of how it was presented in different places. And then it kind of disappeared for a while until around the 1840s. It got brought out. It was actually used as part of the movement for women's rights. And then it disappeared again. And it reappeared in the vault at the Arch Street Meeting House in central Philadelphia in around 2005. And since Haverford College serves as an archive for the records of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, the Germantown protest of 1688 finally ended up here, taking a special place in its Quaker and Special Collections archive, where you can go and ask to see it today. When I started out, I wanted to tell the story of the Germantown protest, its writers, and the neighborhood today. I thought that the story ended here, with the four writers of the Germantown protest, crying out against the injustices of slavery practiced by the Quaker elite of Philadelphia, and writing the earliest anti-slavery document in U.S. history. Nearly 100 years before the Declaration of Independence, the writers of the Germantown protest wrote, here is liberty of conscience, which is right and reasonable. Here ought to be likewise liberty of the body. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That sounds better. But the writers of the Germantown protest really meant it to apply to all men, regardless of generation, descent, or color. But even though the protest is remarkable for its humanity and for calling out slavery as an abuse of political and economic power, the protest ultimately failed in its efforts to persuade the Quaker elite of Philadelphia to get out of the slavery business. But I found out that the story didn't end there. So in the next episode of this podcast, we're going back to Germantown, and we're going to find out what came after the protest and what it means for the Germantown community today. Because some people just refuse to shut up. Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank all of the amazingly generous people whose voices you heard on this episode. Dennis Barnaby, Catherine Gerbner, Mary Crowderife, Zendra Sharif Trudeau, and Stefan Kaufer. Thank you all for your time and willingness to be a part of this project. 
I'm also deeply thankful for the support of Cyril Taillandier, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University. If you're like me and you just can't get enough of Philadelphia and its history, then you can take a deep dive at foundinphiladelphia.com. We will find images, links, and a big fat bibliography. And if you like this show and don't want to miss the next episode, please subscribe to Found in Philadelphia wherever you get your podcasts.